Well, I'm excited to uh, unfold, unpack much of what we sang about this morning and what we recited in our article as we think about the topic of sanctification. Uh, if I were to ask you, what is God's will for your life, um, you should have an answer. You shouldn't have to think about it. It shouldn't take you some time to dissect that question. Uh, but the sad thing is that there's a lot of professing Christians that when you ask them what is God's will for your life, they seem to be on this never-ending search for God's will. They, they ask themselves that question. And even though we know that God doesn't reveal all the details to us, there is a very, very clear directive in Scripture what God's will is for all of our lives, individually and corporately. And you say, well, Dom, how do you know with absolute certainty what God's will is for my life? I know it because the Scripture says it. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, we read, For this is the will of God. And then Paul says, Your sanctification. Very simple, very direct. Your ever-increasing holiness, that is God's desire for you, His will for you is that you would be more like Jesus. And so if you think back with me to our article, Article 11, yes, there's lots of what seems like fancy words, theological words, deep words, but it's very simple. Let me just restate that for us again to get our minds around it. We affirm and proclaim. We're affirming that this is what the Scripture teaches, but we're not just sitting back and saying, yeah, that's what the Scripture teaches. We're actually proclaiming this. What are we proclaiming? That God does sanctify. That is, he sets apart the believer. He, he, he makes them holy. And how does he do that? He does that positionally and progressively. You say, well, what do those words mean? Well, positional sanctification, it provides instantaneous, like that, right away, immediate. It happens, point in time. That is our justification. We are declared holy forever to be identified as a saint. You don't become justified and then one day not be justified. When God justifies you, you are always justified. But that's not the same as the progressive sanctification. Because the progressive sanctification is the Holy Spirit growing the believer into Christ-likeness and moving him towards his ultimate and final sanctification which is our glorification. No more fighting and struggling with the enemy and the world and with sin because one day we will finally be glorified, finally made fully like Christ. Those are great definitions, I think. The theological, maybe a little technical. But how do we look at sanctification in a way that helps us to actually be holy? How exactly are we to be sanctified? When uh, I was in college, uh, yeah, I was still in college. Uh, I had proposed to my wife um, back in 1999. Is it 99? No. Two, help me out here. 2001. <laughs> we were in Israel and uh, got down on one knee on the Sea of Galilee and proposed to my beautiful at that time, girlfriend, now fiancé, because she said yes. 
And we got back to the States and I realized, hey, I don't have a job and I don't have any money. How am I going to provide for my wife? And so I started working. And at one point I had four jobs. I was a substitute teacher. I was working at two restaurants and I was doing babysitting, trying to get myself prepared to be a man and responsible. But the first job that I got was construction. And you look at Dom and you say, Dom, you were working construction? Oh yeah, I was for a week. My job on the construction site was to dig these big 20 by 20 ditches where we would pour concrete and those things would become the pillars, the foundation of this parking structure. So I was a young man. I just finished my basketball career. I had some muscles and I was like, yeah, I can shovel some ditches. I could do that. So I get to the job site and I grab this nice shovel and, and um, I realize that shoveling a 20 by 20 ditch is a lot of work. So the foreman kind of looks at me and says, no, 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 we're, that's why we have the big tractors. The, the tractor does the digging. Sure, sure, you're going to use the shovel to help maybe, but the power is in the tractor. And I realized then that, yes, oftentimes I'm thinking about trying to dig things up and work on my own and use this little tool that I have when really the power comes in a big machine that can pick up the dirt and move the dirt. I think our sanctification is much like that. The Spirit of God is the divine power in making us more like Christ. Sure, we work, we grab our shovels, and we begin to dig, but really the power comes from outside of ourself. And when you think about it, even when you're shoveling, that power is also coming from God himself. So we need to understand, as much as we can, how God sovereignly works in us to produce Christ-likeness and how we're to work out our salvation. How are we responsible and yet at the same time God is working in us? So this morning, that's exactly what Paul does in just these two verses, verse 12 and 13. He's going to help us understand how our work in sanctification is necessary, but it's only because of God's power in our sanctification that our sanctification is possible. And if you've been with us, we've spent the last several weeks, probably more than a month now, looking at Philippians 2. And last week we talked about this, this high Christology, all this theology, and we said that it actually has an aim. It's not only for admiration where we kind of sit back and enjoy all the things that we see in the text. No, there is a purpose when we contemplate the humiliation of Christ, how he came from heaven down to earth, he lowered himself and he just goes down further and further and further, becoming a servant, going to death on the cross. And then we see his exaltation and his glorification. All those things are intended to do something in us. And yes, it is to sit back and admire and to enjoy and to glory in God. But one of the ways that we do that is by working out our salvation. That's what he says in verse 12. So what Paul does in chapter 2, he gives us this instruction, how we're to be humble, to be Christ-minded, to put others' needs and concerns before our own, not to be selfishly ambitious. And so we say, how do we do that? Here's the instruction. And then Paul says, here's the example. Here's the pattern. And now we have to say, well, okay, there's the pattern. We see it. There's the instruction, the command. But where's the power to do it? How can I do this Christ-likeness life? And maybe if you're like me sometimes, you just get discouraged because your sanctification, your becoming more like Christ just seems to be going really, really slow. 
You're not moving at the rate and the pace that you want to. You don't look like Jesus and sound like Jesus, and it pains you sometimes. And so we get overwhelmed, and we feel guilty, and we feel burdened. How is your sanctification going this morning as you walked into church on Sunday? Maybe some of you came to Christ with that promise of Matthew 11 in your mind. Because didn't Jesus there say, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Shouldn't the Christian life, now that I'm actually saved, be about rest? Resting in Christ? Shouldn't things get easier for the Christian? But notice, even in that text in Matthew 11, that he promises rest, but he does not promise that your work is done. This is what Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And we love that. And we love that he will provide rest for our souls. But he says in verse 30, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's still a yoke, church, and there's still a burden It might be easier and it might be lighter, but make no mistake, there's still work to be done while you have breath. So the question we want to answer this morning is, since there is work for us to do as believers, where does the power come for us to do that work? And notice, too, that I'm making an assumption here. I am assuming that both you and I believe that obedience is required of the Christian. There are some that do not believe that obedience is required. But Paul says we must work out our salvation. That is a command itself. That's what verse 12 teaches us. The Christian life, listen to this, is about expending energy. We must do that. We cannot be spiritual sloths. The biblical language for the Christian life is very clear. It's a sustained effort. Paul just said, stand firm. He said, strive together. We are to labor. We are to wrestle. Paul will say later that I poured out my very own life. We resist temptation. We fight the good fight. We uh, beat our bodies into submission and we discipline ourselves for godliness. Anyone who says, oh, Christianity, once you become Christian, man, it's a cakewalk from here on out. That's not true. There are preachers, there are so-called pastors who preach passivity in the Christian life. And they're actually doing a great disservice to the church, making it seem like, well, if you have Jesus as your Savior, then you don't have anything to do because you're saved and you're going to glory. There's a song, there's a teaching. I've actually seen messages on this very text that are, let go and let God. You know how Jesus would respond to that? Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? We don't come to Christ and then just casually cruise into glory. Obedience to the Lordship of Christ is extremely costly. He has put us to work. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And when did God prepare those? Before the foundation of the earth. So the Christian life, again, requires energy. It requires effort and our obedience. If you have not figured this out in 2021, it will be met with opposition. It will be met with persecution. And at the rate we're going, if you continue to proclaim Christ, it might meet 
death, your obedience. The argument of Philippians 2, 12 through 13 is not, look, God is at work in you, therefore you can just stop trying, stop working. No, the argument is God is at work in you, therefore work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what Paul is saying. The fact that God is the author of our salvation, the fact that he's the author and the perfecter of our sanctification, the fact that he is with us in our spiritual growth, doesn't imply that we just sit back and wait for it to happen. No, there is work to be done, but it is work with fear and trembling, recognizing where the power comes from. It comes from God. Now, when we unpack this verse, let me just give a quick warning because some of you are leaning a little bit to the left. Some of you are leaning a little bit to the right. What do I mean by that? Sometimes when you come across a command like this, what you see is, well... Yes, be a doer, be a doer, be a doer, be a doer. And that's not necessarily bad, but it's bad if you become a legalist in your doing, thinking that you're earning favor with God. We don't want to be legalist. You go the other direction and you become one who believes in license, where there is no laws I have to obey, there is no laws I have to command because I'm living in the sphere of grace. Look, there are some things that require your efforts. Election is not one of them. Election is 100% God and 0% you. How do we know that? Because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that he chose you. When did he choose you? Before the foundation of the world. Romans 9, if you don't like Ephesians, Romans 9 is even stronger. It says, for though the twins were not yet born, they didn't exist. And they had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works but because of him who calls. Your election, church, you being chosen by God, all God, not you. But then there's also actions like sin where we can't say God made me do it. That's God's fault. That is 0% God and 100% you. So when we went through an exposition of James, James was very clear. Let no one say when you're tempted by God that God is tempting me. Why? Because God cannot tempt anyone. It's when we're carried away and enticed by our own lusts. But again, thinking about this idea of sanctification. Sanctification is 100% God and 100% you. 100% me. God acts through us and yet we are still called to act Hebrews 13 says this in verse 20, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, and look at verse 21, equip you in every good thing to do his will. And he could have just stopped right there, but then he adds this, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. And Colossians 1.29 says this, For this purpose, Paul writes, I also labor, striving according to the power which mightily works within me. See, God is working. We are working. And we can't make the mistake of thinking it's all us. And we got to do, 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 fall into legalism and thinking that it's not us at all. It's all going to be God and fall into this error of license. Both legalism and license will lead you straight to hell. 
Because on one side, you think you're doing enough to earn God's favor and God should let you into heaven because you've done a good job. And the other is, well, hey, God saved me, so he's supposed to do all the work and you do nothing. And both of those are false and dangerous. So what do you do when you come to the fork of the road? You keep your eyes on Jesus and you go straight. That's what you do. And here again in Philippians 12, or 2, 12-13, we have the antidote to prevent us from falling into the poison of these two extremes. Let's read it together. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Paul writes this. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, I know we're in 15 minutes, but let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, please give us wisdom to see your word, to know your word, to live your word. We're depending on your spirit now to press these truths deep down into our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Here's a routeline for this morning. Uh, I was just talking to Sister Becca. She said, hey, this is how the military thinks through problem solving. Uh, we asked the, the five W questions, and I just added an H one. So we're looking at this. Who is at work? Right from the text, it is God who is at work. You say, well, what is it that God is doing? Well, it says he's working. Well, when is God at work? The assumption here is all the time. When is, God, when is God at work? All the time. Where is God at work? He is at work in you. How is God at work? He is working both to will and to work. And why is God at work in you? And Paul says there, it is for his good pleasure. So we've got the who, what, when, where, how, and why of the text. And we're just going to let Paul unfold this for us. Uh, here's our main idea if you're taking notes. that I try to sum it up as best I can. One sentence. Sanctification is God's work. And his work in us produces good works. Let me say it again. Sanctification is God's work. And his work in us produces good works. To say it another way. Because God is working in your sanctification, you will work out your sanctification. He's 100% sovereign in your obedience. You are 100% responsible in obeying all that God commands. So who is at work? Well, you say it's God. We know that, right? All three members of the Trinity are active in our sanctification. But here, the particular stress is on the Father. God the Father is the one at work. And we know that the Father is in view here because of the previous text. It is the Father who highly exalts His beloved Son. And it's the Father who gives Him the name that is above every name in verse 9. And all of the glorious truths in chapter 2 have been staring right to the end of verse 11. The end of verse 11 says that it is to the glory of God the Father. Yes, all three members are working but Paul tells us that our spiritual growth, listen, is the Father's sovereign plan. He purposed it. He provides for it. And he empowers you to be more like his son. If you go back to Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he, who is the he referring to? God the Father that he, the Father, who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And you say, well, doesn't that diminish the, the, 
the Holy Spirit's work or, or Jesus' work? And I would say, no, absolutely not. Paul just wants to emphasize that the Father is hands-on in your sanctification. You have the God of the Deists who get the world going and start the clock and they step back. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says that the Father is intimately involved in every aspect of our spiritual growth. Does that comfort you to know that the Father who loves you, who's given up his own son for you, has not abandoned you to figure out how to be sanctified on your own? No, it is the Father who enables you to carry out every single command. That is the who. It is the Father who's the primary agent now the question is, well, what is it that the Father is doing? It's right there. He is at work. But don't miss that little word right there at the beginning. It says for or because. And that word gar in the Greek, it connects what verse 13 says and what verse 12 says. Paul is saying this, you should work because God works in you. That that conjunction helps make the logical connection. We work because God works. Very simple. The call to work out salvation in verse 12 must be informed by the fact that God works in. And that word work, you'll, you'll make the connection here. It's the Greek word energeo. Energeo. It means energize. God is, the Father is, the energizer of our sanctification. And the literal translation of this participle is, he is the one energizing. God is the one who is sovereignly engaging and empowering and enabling you to look more like Jesus. That's what he's doing. And it makes me very uh, happy that, one, I am not like God, because I get tired. I get injured. I run out of steam. Parents, you, you know this, at the end of the day, uh, you get to the end of the day, parenting your children, disciplining your children, and you're, you're ready for a break. You need sleep. You need rest. You need to recoup. You need to be rejuvenated. God needs none of that. He is always involved, always active, never loses focus. The Bible tells us that when he called us into the kingdom and gifted us with our regeneration and our new birth, he is always now working for our sanctification. John Calvin says this, Christ justifies no one whom he does not also sanctify. By virtue of our union with Christ, he bestows both gifts, the one never without the other. See again, when you're justified, he transforms you from being a sinner to a saint's. That is what justification is. But sometimes we think that sanctification is like the fairy tale where you have a little divine kiss and automatically become frogs turned into princes. And that is not what sanctification is. It is a slow process. It is a progressive movement. Now God is working in us. The fact that God is working in us, it doesn't negate our responsibility to work. It's just the exact opposite. There is an expectation that since God is working, that that work actually flows through us. Listen, there is a serious disconnect if you're sitting thinking 
just kind of twiddling your spiritual thumbs that God is just going to do all the work for you. That is not working out our salvation. The Bible says you should obey. The Bible says you must obey. The Bible says we should delight to obey because of the work that God has already done. And because he is sovereignly working in us, that should compel us to work all the time for him, to be on task, to be devoted. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. But then he switches back, but yet not I, but the grace of God with me. You see, the decisive work that allows me and motivates me to strive is God, but I still have to decide to work. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but who lives in me? Christ lives in me. And the life which I live, now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is not saying in that verse, that God is working in our place. No, by faith we understand that Christ is in us and wants to work through us, and therefore we do the works that demonstrate that he's actually living inside of us. Pastor and author Jim Eliff says this, sanctification is not just about purity or discipline. It is about displaying your radical difference, showing the marks of God's ownership and illustrating through your behavior the, listen to this, unusualness of your new life in Christ. People should see you working and ask questions. Why is she sacrificing? Why is he working so hard? J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, he says this, genuine sanctification is a thing that can be seen. We can't identify who's saved. No one has the elect tattooed on the back of their head. But someone should be able to watch your life and your works and say, wow, there is something dramatically different about him or her. You know, I'm so grateful for what we have here on Saturdays. But God himself is not personally, visibly, physically evangelizing our kids at the Good News Club. But he's working through people to do that. Uh, I would gladly sit down right now if Jesus was here personally, physically preaching the word. I've got no business up here. But he works through me to communicate truth. Our music team, God is not playing the instruments. He's not greeting the visitors. He's not praying for the sick. He's not preparing meals for people who are in need but he's working through us to do those things, to show him to be great. And he wants us, church, listen, to be joyful in taking advantage of all the resources that are available to us through his power. The, the new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36 is this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. God delights when we take advantage of all that is available to us through his power. The who? God the Father. The what? What is he doing? He's working. Now the question is when? 
When is the Father doing these things? And the answer to that is all the time. Paul doesn't say that God worked in you at one point in time, although he did. He doesn't say God saved you and gave you a new heart and, and gave you a new spirit and then just kind of nudged you along the way. Uh, the other day, we are trying to help Judah learn how to ride a bike. And uh, he's got training wheels and he's got this big old helmet that makes him look funny because the helmet probably weighs more than he does. But as a father, I don't put him on a bike with no training wheels and no helmet. No, no, no. He's got training wheels and I'm right beside him, walking alongside him the whole way. That is how the Father is working. The verb here for work, it's the present participle, which simply means that he is never not at work. You say, well, Dom, didn't God rest the seventh day from creation? Yes, but he doesn't rest for one single second in your sanctification. He's working day and nights. What a comforting thought that you are never left alone. God doesn't have off hours. He doesn't have a sign that says closed for business. He doesn't need sleep. He doesn't need rest. When we say, man, I just, I could use a vacation. I could use a sabbatical. Uh, I need some quiet time, some downtime. God never says that. God never gets exhausted or frustrated or discouraged or overwhelmed. But every second of every day, God the Father is by your side helping you be more like Jesus. And this is where you say, well, pastor, I don't feel like that. It doesn't feel that way because sometimes I feel alone. Sometimes I feel like I'm all by myself in my sanctification. And I would just say, listen to what you said. You said that's a feeling. It's not a fact. That's not what the Bible teaches. The psalmist frequently felt that feeling. Moses felt that feeling Job, David, you just go through all of the people in the Old Testament and the New, people felt like God wasn't there, but that is not the truth. Deuteronomy 31 verse 8 says this, The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you, and he will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you, so do not fear or be dismayed. And you say, Dom, why are you claiming a promise that Moses made to Joshua for us in the New Testament? Well, he repeats it in Hebrews it's there. Jesus said himself, he will never leave or forsake you. Psalm 139, verse 9 says, If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold on to me. Listen, church, God is always on duty. He's always at work constantly, relentlessly working to bring about your spiritual maturity. You are never alone. Because you're a child of God, listen to this, God's promise to you is he's not finished with you. He is going to complete the work he started, and he is with you every step of the way. He's by you, he's for you, he's with you. That is the who, the father. That is the what, he's working that is the when all the time. Now the question is, where is the Father working? Where is he working? Look there at that preposition. It's an important one. It's just the word in. In. It's true that God is working for us. He's working through us. He's working by us, even alongside us. But here in the text, 
Paul makes a point to say he's actually working in you, which means that it's not some superficial kind of help. He's not helping from a distance like he's on Zoom. He doesn't sit on the peripheral. He's not uninterested. He's not disengaged. But God is personally working in you, the very depths of your soul. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, Your very body is a temple of who? The Holy Spirit, whom you have from God. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The beautiful thing is that every part of you God is working in. He's working in your mind, transforming it, conforming it to the mind of Christ. He's working in your heart. He's enlarging your capacity to love Him and to love others. He's working on your desires as He's reshaping your attitudes to match that of Christ, to have that Christ-minded humility. He's working on your affections. He's replacing and refining them so that they're holy. God is constantly at work. He's even working on your will so that you would want to choose what is good and holy, acceptable. It is a comprehensive work that he is working in you. And I just think, man, isn't that astonishing? The God of the universe, who owns all things, the one who sits up in the heavens, who owns every square inch of the universe, he's personally and intimately working in your life. That's what the Bible says. I just think sometimes, man, God in control of all things, all events, princes and kings and queens and every little molecule and piece of dust in outer space, God actually lives in me. The one who said, let there be light, lives in me and lives in you. And he's working. When I think about other religions, there is no other religion that has a personal God like this. All the false gods of other religions, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Hinduism, Buddhism, all the isms and schisms are all about what you need to do, how you need to work. It is your effort. But the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity says, no, God works these things in you. You don't earn your way. God has already provided the way. I mean, just think of all the ways that the Scriptures present God as a personal God, an intimate God. He is our Father. He is our Shepherd. He is our Helper, our Teacher, our Potter. He is our Vine Dresser. He's actively involved, constantly shaping us, strengthening us, sustaining us, encouraging us, convicting us, challenging us, comforting us in our time of need. God is at work in you And all of that ongoing work of God in our hearts, listen to this, church, it is intended for you to do something. To be a conduit of that grace. To be a receiver and then to be a giver. If God was not working in you, the truth is we just would not grow. You would not grow. You would not see those little marks on the door of you getting taller and taller and more mature. But this is his promise. 
Jesus reminds us in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we not only grow individually as we connect ourselves to the lifeline, which is Christ, but we do this collectively. Paul actually puts this in the plural. And he intends, this is why we gather, this is why we have to be meeting physically and can't do church online. We have to be together physically because we do this corporately. We grow together. Paul is talking to the beloved, to all the saints. And when I think about the beauty of that, for all generations, everyone who is in Christ, God is personally working in. The who is God the Father. The what is God doing? He is working. When is the Father working? All the time. Where is the Father working? He is working in you. Now the question is, how is the Father working? How is he working? Look at the text. It says he is working in you to will and to work. And this is where we run into a pretty hard interpretive question. Because the question is, is this referring to God's work and willing or to God causing our work and willing? And so you read commentators and you listen to pastors and they're kind of split on this. And I'll just say this, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit of both. In the fact that, yes, God is willing and working, but the emphasis here is about causing your will to change and your work to change. He transforms our will. He empowers our work. Both our desires and our deeds, they are energized by God. And so he both prompts and performs the work that he creates us to do. That word there for will, it's a great word. It's the word thalo. It just describes a thoughtful and purposeful choice, which should tell you something. Paul's not describing an emotional desire. It's not a feeling. It's not an urging. No, God moves in you in such a way that you begin to make intentional choices. One of the hardest realities of the Christian life is that Christianity is hard. I was thinking about this because I wrote here, it is hard to love difficult people. And then I realized it's hard to love lovely people. Even my own family, who are the most lovely and the greatest people in the world. But I'm a sinner. And I have difficulty loving the way as I ought. Obedience, listen, is demanding. It is hard work. It's hard work to say, I'm going to not do what I want to do, but serve somebody else. Serve my spouse in this moment. It's hard work to say, I'm going to forgive when I don't feel like forgiving. Listen, if you wait around until you feel like obeying, it's never going to happen. So what do you do, church? I don't want to read the Bible. I don't feel like it does anything for me. I don't want to pray. I got other things to do. Priorities. Work. I don't want to go to church today. It's raining. It's cold. I don't want to obey God's command because I want to do what I want to do. How do we go from being unwilling to being willing to say, no, I delight to do your will, O God. God has to do the work in us. He has to create the desire in us. Listen, he commands things, but he always helps you to obey those things. 
He empowers you to obey. Again, what other God in all the religious books does that? He is the cause. Our obedience is the effect. First the will, then the work. He changes our desires. And then those desires produce deeds that are pleasing to him. Martin Lloyd-Jones is very helpful as he writes this about our will and sanctification. He says, These desires for a a fuller and better and more perfect Christian life, they're not self-generated. They're not self-produced. When you have a desire to do something good or a desire to pray, it is God who is energizing it in your will. God is bringing his great purpose to pass in our Christian life. And by controlling our will, our desires, our thoughts, and our aspirations, God persuades our will and gives us holy desires. He gives us the holy ambitions. He generates the hatred for sin. He cultivates the desire for righteousness. He gives you a desire to please him and be more like him in every way. God wants you so desperately to be like Jesus. And he is committed to that. Our wills, they're weak. If we would choose, we would choose just to go the easy route, to go the broad road. Do you realize that your salvation and your sanctification is a miracle? This isn't actually what you would do. The reason why you're here, the reason why you read, the reason why you pray, the reason why you serve is because God has done that work in you. That is a beautiful thing. Praise God that his will is stronger than ours. I think we give man too much credit. We say things like, you could lose your salvation. You would if you could, but you won't because it's God's power who saves you and preserves you to the very end. The great commentator Matthew Henry says this, God gives the whole ability. It is the grace of God which inclines the will to that which is good and then enables us to perform it. And again, even though God's work is primary, your work is necessary. We just can't sit back idly and wait for it to happen. MacArthur says this, sanctification doesn't happen by osmosis. Look, we we can't starve ourselves spiritually and still expect to grow in the likeness of Christ. All the facets of Scripture, all its rich benefits and blessings are not available to those who fail or refuse to open it and study it. And you know MacArthur's mind and heart. How are we changed? Through the Word of God. Because it is the Spirit of God working through the Word of God that brings about change in the people of God. We need to go to His promises. We need to even go to His threats and be reminded that your joy is decreased when you ignore God and His Word. Spurgeon says this, All, all is of God, and he who gave the desire will surely fulfill it. He that gave you the will does not leave you there. He works in you the power to do, the power to achieve the victory, the power to smite down the loftiest plum of pride shall come from him. Though your inner life shall be subject to 10,000 dangers, he will give you power to do what is right, the just, the lovely, and the true, for he works gloriously in you. We cannot do this on our own. God knows that, so he gives us his spirit to do that work in us. 
if the Spirit were ever to withdraw His power, we would all fail. The who? The Father. The what? He is working. The when? All the time. The where? It is in you. How? He is willing and working and causing us to will and to work. And the last question is just why? Why all of this? Why verse 13? What is Paul's point? What is his argument? What is the climax of this all? It's for his good pleasure. It is for his good pleasure. That should stagger you that the God who is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases, he can do whatever he wants, and yet it pleases him that you grow into the image of his Son. God is doing the work in your life. He is doing it for his own good pleasure. He is not reluctantly working in you, but God sanctifies you. Listen to this. Because he wants to. He wants to sanctify you. We sing, immortal, invisible, God only wise. That God wants to sanctify you and make you like Jesus. It pleases him. That word, uh, good pleasure, it expresses great enjoyment and satisfaction. Again, this is how the, the, the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, 9 through 11 ended. It's to the glory of God. And now we see the same thing here. God wills and he works in you for his glory. Listen, church. I've said it a million times already. God has justified you. And he sanctifies you so that you can display his greatness. Our whole goal, justification, sanctification, all the Asians, glorification, all of the theology is so that God would receive the glory. Titus 2.14 says this, Jesus, who gave, our God who gave Jesus to us himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You say, why is God in this business of shaping us and forming us to look like his son? And it's very clear because God, at the baptism and later on in Jesus' ministry, the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased when we understand that God empowers our sanctification when we understand that sanctification is a process but that process is making us more like Christ do you understand that God is pleased when he reproduces his son in us on this earth this planet this world this culture it doesn't need you and your wisdom and your gifting and your passions what this world needs is more of Jesus. And God says, I have an answer. My church. I am going to work out Christ in the lives of my children to give the world what the world needs. More of Jesus. Oswald Chambers, in his fantastic book, many of you have read it, My Utmost for His Highest. He says this, Sanctification means intense concentration on God's point of view. It means every power of body and soul and spirit is chained and kept for God's purposes only. It will cause an intense narrowing of all of our interest on earth 
and an immense broadening of all of our interest in God, are we prepared for God to do all in us that he separated us for? The reason some of us have not entered into the experience of sanctification is that we have not realized its meaning from God's standpoint. Sanctification means being made one with Jesus so that the disposition that ruled him will rule us. Jesus has prayed that we might be one with him as he is one with the Father. The one and only characteristic of the Holy Spirit in a person is a strong family likeness to Jesus Christ and freedom from everything that is unlike him. The sovereign God of the universe, listen church, takes personal pleasure in what he inspires and empowers us to do. It was Matthew Henry that said, let me be taught that the first great business on earth is the sanctification of my own soul. So I just want to ask you, how is your sanctification going? Maybe you came in here and yeah, you're discouraged. Maybe you came in here feeling like you're just picking up a shovel and shoveling a little dirt here and there. God wants to remind you that there is infinite power. There's a huge machine that does the work and it is the Spirit of God. It is God the Father. It is Jesus living in us. Look, so you don't walk away discouraged. It was John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He said, look, I know that I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I thank God I am not what I once was. We're not there yet, church. We've got such a long way to go. You will fail. You'll fail today. You'll sin. You'll hurt people's feelings. You'll have to, in humility, come and confess and repent. But know without a shadow of a doubt that God is thoroughly committed to your sanctification and it delights Him to make you more like Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, what tremendous truth what glory in this passage. What confidence we can have that you are a God that is faithful. A God that is committed to our growth, our sanctification, our holiness, our Christ-likeness. Oh, Father, we love the blessings of the gospel that we have been elected, called before the foundation of the world. We've been justified, made righteous, declared righteous, we are being sanctified and one day we'll be glorified, God. What a sweet treasure trove of truth contained in the Scriptures. Father, we might not know all the ways to perfect this justification, sanctification, glorification. We might not know how exactly we're to handle some of the stresses and worries and concerns of this life. We might not know your will for every little thing that we experience, but what we do know is that your will for us is our sanctification. And if we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, if we keep our mind on things in heaven and not here on earth, if we seek you with our whole heart, if we seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, then all these things will be added to us. 
And Lord, I believe wholeheartedly that all these things includes our Christ-likeness. So Father, please help us to help others by being more like Jesus. Please grant that we would love and serve and yearn to be more like him with the power that you provide. We pray in his name. Amen.